This morning we are beginning to look at the book of 2 Samuel. And if you have a Bible, you'll find it on page 304 in the church Bibles and page 465 in the large print. And I would encourage you to read ahead a chapter or maybe two before you come each week. But before I say anything about this book of 2 Samuel, we're just going to jump right in to the start and read the first 16 verses of chapter 1. After the death of Saul, David returned from striking down the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag two days. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honor. Where have you come from? David asked him. He answered, I have escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened? David asked. Tell me. The men fled from the battle, he replied. Many of them fell and died. And Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Then David said to the young man who brought him the report, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said, and there was Saul leaning on a spear with the chariots and their drivers in hot pursuit. When he turned round and saw me, he called out to me, and I said, What can I do? He asked me, Who are you? An Amalekite, I answered. Then he said to me, Stand here by me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept And fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and for the nation of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. David said to the young man who brought him the report, where are you from? I am the son of a foreigner, an Amalekite, he answered. David asked him, why weren't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of his men and said, Go, strike him down. So he struck him down and he died. For David had said to him, Your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. This is God's word. Verse 1 tells us we are arriving here in the middle of something big. The story that began back in 1 Samuel has just taken a significant turn. So we need to remind ourselves what happened in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel began at a time when Israel had no king. At least they had no human king. God was their king. And he had done great things for them. He would brought the Israelites out of their slavery down in Egypt. He'd done that under the leadership of Moses. 
And eventually he had brought them into the land of Canaan, the land that he'd promised them. That happened under the leadership of Joshua. But then there was a long, messy period in Israel's history. God raised up a series of judges during that time. Most of them were really just warriors like Samson. They won a few victories against Israel's enemies. But there was no one to bring the people together during that time. There was no one to rule over them well and with justice. There was no one really to lead them in worshipping and obeying God. So when we looked at 1 Samuel a couple of years ago, we called that series Looking for a Leader. That's what 1 Samuel is all about. It gets its name from a man called Samuel. He served God as a priest and a prophet at that time. And early on in 1 Samuel, the people of Israel came to him and they demanded a king. Now asking for a king was not a bad thing. In fact, God planned to give them a king. They needed a king. But there was a major problem with the kind of king Israel asked for. They wanted a king, in their own words, such as all the other nations have. And they wanted that kind of king so they could be like all the other nations. The problem was, Israel was not supposed to be like all the other nations. They were God's people. When he rescued them from Egypt, he said to them, Out of all the nations, I have chosen you as my treasured possession. So the kind of king Israel needed was a king who would help them be different from everybody else, not the same. They needed a king who recognized God as the real king. They needed a king who would reign under God's authority. The kings of the other nations, well, they acted as if they were God. They thought they had ultimate authority. And their people suffered because of that. But when Israel demanded a king, they were more interested at that time in being like the other nations than they were in being different. And God recognized that. He understood the people were rebelling against him. And he said to Samuel, Give them what they've asked for. Give them a king like all the other nations. That king was Saul. His name means asked for. He was exactly what Israel wanted. He came from a powerful family and he was a physically impressive man. Handsome and tall, we're told. He looked like a king. There was no problem with his looks. But there was a big problem with Saul's character. He went about things as if Israel was his kingdom and not God's. Saul didn't rule as a steward who was under God's authority. Saul ruled as if he was the authority. And things didn't go well. Saul spent most of his reign not leading the people but trying to squash any Israelite who seemed like a threat to Saul's power. 
He was more focused on imaginary enemies inside Israel than he was on real enemies around Israel. And the book of 1 Samuel ended with a massive defeat for Israel. They were beaten in battle by the Philistines. Saul himself was very badly wounded and he committed suicide. Three of his sons died that day too. And it's very important for us to realize as we come to 2 Samuel, Saul's death was not just the death of a king. One writer says, Saul's death was the end of a failed experiment in Israel. Israel had put her hope in a human leader instead of God. And the experiment failed miserably. Israel was left in a mess. They were routed by the Philistines. They abandoned their towns and the Philistines moved into them. Israel had put their faith in Saul. They had such high hopes of what Saul was going to do for them. But they were disappointed. And that's always the way it goes when we put our hope in human leaders instead of in God. So when 2 Samuel begins with the words, after the death of Saul, it's telling us not just that a king has died, it's telling us Israel's big hopes have died. They got the king they asked for. They got the leader according to their own heart. And that leader failed them. But the opening verse of 2 Samuel also lets us know God has something better for Israel. They have had the king according to their own heart. Now they're going to have the king according to God's heart. The king God has chosen for them. The same verse that tells us about Saul's defeat tells us about a victory for David. While Saul was being defeated by the Amalekites, sorry, by the Philistines, David was defeating the Amalekites. And David hasn't appeared out of nowhere here in this verse. God had not been standing watching while things were unraveling under Saul. God has been preparing his own king for Israel. 1 Samuel tells us all about that too. During the second half of 1 Samuel, David was Israel's king in waiting. God had told him he would be king, and Samuel had even anointed him privately. But because of Saul's jealousy, David ended up living in exile as an outlaw. He and his men lived among the Philistines. Ziklag, which is mentioned here, was a a city in the Philistine territory. That was David's base during part of his time in exile. And it was given to him by a Philistine king. But even in exile, David has been doing what a true king of Israel should be doing. He has been working against the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people. Even before David came to the throne, he was more kingly than Saul who was sitting on the throne. And now, after the death of Saul, we're going to see what it's like under the reign of God's king. 
And that's why I'm calling this series, Your Kingdom Come. I didn't come up with that myself. It's the title of a book on 2 Samuel. But we're going to use it because it gets at the core of this book. Your Kingdom Come, of course, is a phrase from the Lord's Prayer. Whenever we pray those words, we're praying for God's rule to be seen in this world. And the place where we see God's rule most clearly in the Old Testament is in the reign of King David. If you want to get a sense of God's kingdom, look at David's kingdom. Now, as we go through 2 Samuel, we will realize very, very quickly, David is not perfect. His reign is not perfect. Far, far from it. But in the context of the whole Bible, David's reign is pointing us forward. David's reign is foreshadowing the reign of God's perfect king, Jesus Christ. And that's why the very first verse of the New Testament tells us Jesus is the son of David. Meaning he's the descendant of David. The New Testament highlights that fact again and again and again. And when it does that, it's not just saying, well, isn't it cool? We can trace Jesus' family tree all the way back to David. No, the New Testament wants us to see something very significant. It stresses that Jesus is the son of David because his reign takes what was good in David's reign and brings it to perfection. What King David showed in a faint way, King Jesus shows in a perfect way. So again and again as we look at this book, we're going to be looking up from David to Jesus. We'll be looking to Jesus to find what we can only find imperfectly here in David. And we're going to see both success and great failure in the reign of David. The writer of 2 Samuel is not interested in writing a book of hero worship. None of the Bible writers are interested in doing that. The only hero in the Bible is God. The Bible is shockingly honest about its human heroes. And when we see the flaws in David, it will turn us back again to Jesus. And it will cause us to pray, your kingdom come. You're the king we need. It's your reign we need. But all of that really is jumping ahead a bit this morning because we're going to look just at this passage we read together. And we see right here at the start something that sets the pattern for the rest of the book. We see a major difference here between the kind of ambition we saw in Saul and the kind of ambition we're going to see in God's chosen king. Now, of course, Saul doesn't appear in this passage apart from the death notice we're given in verse 1. But the Amalekite in this passage is carrying on the kind of ambition that characterized Saul's reign. And he highlights the very different kind of ambition David has. David and the Amalekite are the only 
two significant characters in this scene. And they show us two kinds of ambition. Now ambition is not necessarily a bad thing. It can be a very, very good thing if it's the right kind of ambition. And so as we look at this, the question for each of us will be, which kind of ambition do I have? The situation we're jumping into here is that Saul is dead, but David doesn't yet know he's dead. Remember, David has been fighting another battle in another place. He knew Israel and the Philistines were fighting at the same time, but he doesn't know who won. Then this man arrives at Ziklag. Verse 2 says his clothes are torn and he has dust on his head. What's that about? Well, those were standard outward signs of grief. And the man bows before David and he gives David the honor that's due to a king. But we're also told he came from Saul's camp. He's come about 80 miles, leaving Saul in order to bow before David. David has been waiting anxiously to find out how the battle went. You can hear the urgency in his voice in verse 4. What happened? Tell me. And the man says the men fled from the battle. Many of them fell and died. And Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. And at this point, something about the man makes David hesitate. We're not told if it was his tone of voice or maybe the look in his eye. But something seems to make David unsure about it. And so he asks for proof in verse 5. How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? Look again at what the man says to David in verse 6. I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said, and there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and their drivers in hot pursuit. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me and I said, what can I do? He asked me, who are you? An Amalekite, I answered. Then he said to me, stand here by me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood beside him and killed him. Because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. Is this man telling the truth? Well, in order to answer that, we have to turn back a page in our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 31. Here, we get the definitive version of what happened that day. It's definitive because it's given to us by the writer of Scripture, the narrator. Chapter 31, verse 1. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them and many fell dead on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons. And they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab and Malkishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul. And when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor bearer, 
Draw your sword and run me through. Are these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me? But the armor bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. Does that match the Amalekites' version of events? Well, a good bit if it does. But it differs in one significant point. The detail of how exactly Saul died. The Amalekite says he killed Saul. But what actually happened was Saul asked his armor bearer to kill him. The armor bearer refused to do it and so Saul did it himself. And then the armor bearer in horror killed himself. This Amalekite must have been close enough to see and hear what happened. There's no doubt he was there. He was able to pick up Saul's crown and armband. But he's chosen to slot himself into the story. And claim he put an end to Saul. Why would he do that? Why would he lie about just that detail? Well, the answer is he wants to get well in with David. He has abandoned the old king's sinking ship in favor of the new king's rising star. He's looking for a job in the new government. Notice how in verse 2, he falls to the ground to pay David honor. And in verse 10, he gives David the royal crown and armband. Were those wrong things to do? Well, no, not at all. David is the new king. It's right to honor him. If those things had been done with sincerity, they would have been commendable. But this man is not sincere. The lie shows his true motivation. He doesn't care a bit about Saul or David. He only cares about profiting from this opportunity. He's not truly honoring David as God's chosen king. He sees David as his ticket to a bit of power and position. And so he spices up the story a bit. He claims to have given the final blow to David's great enemy. He thinks surely that will clinch his promotion with David. This man says he's escaped from Saul's camp. But he is still operating under the principles of Saul's camp. He's just like Saul. He's ambitious for personal gain. That's how Saul lived. That was the driving force in Saul's life. That's how Saul made all his decisions. Saul didn't ask what's best for Israel, what's best for God's kingdom. Saul's one question in life was, what's best for Saul? And this Amalekite from Saul's camp is living by the same priority. He has the same ambition. But there's one thing to notice, and this is where it hits home for you and me. 
Both Saul and this Amalekite knew how to go through the motions of honoring God. Even while they were living for personal gain, they knew how to do and say godly things. They knew how to pretend they were living for God's honor. In the Amalekites' case, that meant paying homage to the king God had chosen. He clearly knew that's who David was. He wouldn't have hiked 80 miles if he hadn't known that. But this homage to God's king was for his own gain. The lie gives the game away. If he had a true desire to honor David, he would have seen no need to slot the lie into the story. And if you and I are seeking our own gain, sooner or later, our words or our actions are going to give the game away too. It's not that hard to go through the motions here on Sunday. Praising Jesus, maybe praising him with a good bit of emotion. It's not too hard to do that on Sunday. But how do we live during the week? Do we spend it working to build our own little kingdom? Trying to drag ourselves higher up in this world? We have to stop and make ourselves think about this. Because we can even fool ourselves. That's why the Bible calls us to examine ourselves. In the presence of God... We need to ask ourselves regularly, am I living really for my own gain? Is that what drives me really? Is that what tips the balance in the decisions that I make every day? Does my kingdom come first? And if you and I discover that yes, that is really what's going on, then we have to remember where that kind of motivation belongs. It belongs with Saul, the king of human hopes and ambitions. It belongs with that failed experiment in Israel. And it leads us to the same kind of mess in the end. It belongs with this world and its rebellion against God. This world that's heading for defeat and disappointment. You and I need a greater ambition than that. And we see that greater ambition here in David. We said this Amalekite is still living by the principles of Saul's reign. But he made a major mistake, a fatal mistake. It literally was fatal for him. He assumed Israel's new king operated on the same principles as the old king. But when he ran into David, he found a man ambitious for God's kingdom. The Amalekite here has just given David some major news. But I don't think David's response is the response the Amalekite was expecting. 
Now, he might not quite have expected David to dance a jig, but surely he would have expected a few fist pumps at least. David's arch enemy is dead. But look how David actually responds in verse 11. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and for the nation of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. Now it's not a big surprise that David mourns for Israel. They're his people after all. And it's no surprise that he mourns for Jonathan, his greatest friend. But we're told here he mourns first for Saul, the one who repeatedly tried to kill him, the one who chased him around the mountains for years, giving him no peace day or night, forcing him to live on the run in caves a lot of the time constantly on edge. Saul even married David's wife off to another man when David was away. Saul had been a royal thorn in David's side. And if Saul had had his way, he would have been much more than that. He would have wiped David off the map. But David mourns for him. How can he do that? David mourns because he sees this situation for the tragedy that it is. Saul could have been a great king. Yes, the people had wrong motives when they asked for him, but Saul could have been great. He had been anointed by God. If he had submitted to God's rule instead of acting like he was God, Saul could have led Israel well. They could have prospered under his reign. David mourns here over a man who could have brought honor to God and blessed God's people. But he ruined it all for personal ambition. It's a tragedy. And David can mourn the death of his enemy because he is ambitious for God's kingdom, not for his own. And that explains why he turns on this Amalekite. Because the Amalekite has done what David himself refused to do. David says in verse 14, Why weren't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? How could you dare This is a pretty personal thing for David because 1 Samuel told us of two occasions when David could have killed Saul himself. Once when Saul came into a cave where David and his men were hiding, unbeknownst to Saul. And once when David crept into Saul's camp in the night. Both times Saul was oblivious And David was a spear thrust away from ending his life. And his men egged him on both times. Do it. Seize the throne. God has promised it to you. How could it be wrong? 
But this is how David responded on those occasions. First time he said, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. And the second time, Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David refused to seize the throne. Remember, God had promised it to him. But David would not remove the king God had put in place. David would wait for the throne. And he could wait for the throne because he wasn't living to see his own kingdom come. He was living for God's kingdom. And he wouldn't try to reorganize God's kingdom for his own gain. This Amalekite has run into a different kind of king. David asks him in verse 13, where are you from? He's not asking where have you just come from. He already knows that. David wants to know if this man has any excuse for the way he's behaved. Or the way he's claimed to have behaved. Because you see the irony here, the man didn't actually kill Saul. But his lie has been so convincing, David is taking him at his word. He is going to die because he lied so successfully. David wants to know if this man has any excuse for daring to destroy the Lord's anointed. The man says, I am the son of a foreigner. A better translation is, I am the son of a resident alien. In other words, this man is not just a foreigner. He's a foreigner whose family lives as part of the Israelite society. That's what it means. And what that meant was, this man was entitled to full justice under Israelite law. Maybe that's why he's so quick to declare his status proudly. But the flip side of that is, A resident alien was also subject to the full penalties of Israelite law. And this man has just admitted to killing Israel's king. The king who had been installed by God in front of the whole nation of Israel. That's why the person Saul actually asked to kill him, his armor bearer, wouldn't do it. He didn't dare do such a thing. This Amalekite has no excuse. He knows as much as any Israelite does. David checks he has no excuse, and then he pronounces the death sentence. In verse 16, your blood be in your own head means the blood you have shed, the guilt of that blood be on your head. What's the message of all this? The message is there is no place in God's kingdom for those who live for their own kingdom. And in case you and I think, well, this is just an Old Testament thing. In case we might think that, God repeats the principle right at the start of the New Testament church. 
In the early days of the church, some of the believers were in poverty. And so some of the other believers sold property they had and they gave the proceeds to the church. And as they saw this going on, two of the church members, well, they came up with a plan to gain a reputation in the church for themselves. Their names were Ananias and Sapphira, a husband and wife. They sold a piece of property they had. They kept back part of the money and they gave the other part to the church, claiming they were giving everything. The only reason to tell that lie was to gain a reputation as generous people. The lie proved they were seeking their own kingdom, not God's. And God pronounced the death sentence. He struck them down himself. You can read about it in Acts chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira didn't die because they only gave half the money. They didn't have to give any money. They died because they were ambitious for personal gain. The lie gave them away. So God sends the same strong message at the start of the reign of King David in the Old Testament and the start of the reign of King Jesus in the New Testament. There is no place in God's kingdom for those who live for their own kingdom. So what about us? God has promised to build his kingdom. And that does mean blessing for you and me. In fact, living for God's kingdom will bring us the greatest gain of all. But the question is, are we willing to wait for what God's going to give us? Or are we determined to shove and maneuver and compromise and bend the truth to move ourselves forward? None of us here are immune from this kind of thing. All of us are capable of acting like we're waiting for God's time even while we're trying to grab what we want. All of us can sing and all of us can pray, your will be done, even while we're really chasing our own personal will. But this book begins with a call to live differently. This book, which is about God's kingdom, starts by calling us to put God's kingdom first. And this is not something that we do just once in our lives. This has to be a weekly and even a daily thing for us. All of us are like those old wind-up watches that keep losing time. Or like a compass that loses its true north. We very quickly lose our orientation to God's kingdom. 
We fall back into chasing our own kingdom. And so we regularly have to reset our hearts, reorient our hearts. That's the challenge for us right here at the start of 2 Samuel. In a few moments, we're going to have the perfect opportunity to reorient our hearts to God's kingdom. We're going to gather together around the Lord's table. But we can begin to do it even now as we ask God to do his work in us. We're going to sing, first of all, purify my heart and then let your kingdom come. Let's join in singing.